0: Let me lead us in prayer again as we come to this part of God's Word. Our Father, we thank you for your Word, which is sharper than a double-edged sword. Father, we pray and ask that you would convict us, that you would challenge us, that you would encourage us as you see fit. And we ask this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. As a uh, child, I loved doing those uh, spot the difference puzzles, you know, two pictures uh, that are almost identical but uh, they're not identical and you have to find the differences between the two and you're already noticing that the shoes are different and the flowers are different and the smile and the chin and the... We could sit here for a while but I'm going um, I'm I'm to deny you the satisfaction and move on. Um, not quite so subtle was the Sesame Street version... Uh, Cookie Monster, one of these things is not like the other, one of these things just doesn't belong, can you tell which thing is not like the other, by the time I finish my song, um, and I'm sure Cookie Monster had a strategy for uh, correcting the, uh, the mismatch, just eat them all. Um, or what about this one? I uh, think Sesame Street. Um, you know look at. It. Is that photoshopped? It's, surely it is. Um, Sesame Street taught us some important lessons about uh, pattern matching, um, uh, along with perhaps social in- exclusion. You know, you don't belong because you're different, um, <laughs> or, or maybe I'm overthinking it a bit. But um, <laughs> how does how does being different work with us? Uh, I mean, are you different? Are, are you the odd one out? You know, amongst a sea of conformity, or maybe actually, maybe we're all different. You know, we're we're all individuals, like the Monty Python scene. You know, the mass crowd calls out in unison, "Yes, we're all individuals," and then one person pipes up. <laughs> Profound, yes. When it comes to ourselves, well, we kind of have a funny relationship with the whole spot the difference game. Uh, on the one hand, we, we prize ourselves on our individuality. You are your own special person. Even the great uh, childhood philosopher, Dr. Seuss, affirmed us in our individuality. Today, you are you, that is truer than true. There is no one alive who is youer than you. You are a unique individual and we cherish our individuality. And yet at the same time, Perhaps unconsciously, we, we, we kind of strive to, to blend in, to fit in, to, to be like others around us in what we do, in what we say, in what we own, in what we look like, in what we wear. We strive to, to fit in. And even if we don't do that, that consciously, we, we inevitably are affected by the world and the culture and the people around us as it kind of seeks to shape us to be the same, how does that sit with living as a Christian? Are, are Christians different from those who are not Christians, Sh- should they be different? And mean, you know, can you play a, a spot the difference game with someone who is a Christian and a bunch of people who are not Christians? What what differences should you expect to see? I mean, maybe you can tell me. You know, if you are, what we, what do you think are the distinguishing marks? of a Christian, what differences would you expect to see? Anyone want to offer a suggestion? Church? Might be a difference that Christians go to church. Yeah. Kia Carnival. Care Carnival. <laughs> we we just went to we just went to CMS summer school at Katoomba and you know you're driving driving around in the fog trying to find your way there and oh there's a people mover. We'll follow them. Yeah. Yes. We sing together. Not swearing. Not swearing distinguishing mark. Forgiveness. Mm. Church is one in Christ. Yep. Our actions can be different. Yep. It can be all sorts of different things about christians perhaps visible things uh each year a bunch of men go up to men's uh, men's convention at katoomba and we go to the the uh, you know chinese restaurant we call it chinese maccas uh before because it sort of churn you through quickly and you see groups of of men you think they look like christians i don't know what it is though what is it maybe they're happy or... maybe they're all wearing Merrill. yes <laughs> it used to be colorado didn't it what are the difference? What are the distinguishing marks? What difference should it make? Uh, well, what about us? If, if we're Christians, which I, I take is, is the case for most of us, though not, perhaps not everyone, you may be here and, and, and not, uh, not a Christian, but if you are a Christian or if you were to become a Christian, how should you be different? Well, that's a big question and it's a a question that's bigger than one sermon can answer. But in this passage before us this morning in James 4 and 5, it provides some answers for us. It highlights some important key areas where we should be recognizably different from others who live around us in this world. So, So think with me about what this says and about how this describes us or perhaps doesn't or doesn't describe us. Let's think about how spot the difference should work for us. Uh, I say let's think about it. We need to think about it because actually this difference runs deeper than just our behaviour. It's not just a matter of, of changing our speech or our drinking habits or our wardrobe even. It's got to do with actually our whole framework of understanding of, of the world, of life, of ourselves, of God. Uh, that understanding is not just a head thing though. That's, that's shaped by and it's, it's worked out in our behaviour. But it's first of all a difference in our world view. Uh, The text before us presents two different worldviews that leads to two different ways of living. Uh, And despite the fact that these words were penned some 2,000 years ago, they are amazingly relevant and descriptive of life today in 21st century Australia. Uh, One of the dominant worldviews of our modern Western culture is what we could simply call materialism, Uh, the belief that this material world of, of matter, that that is all there is, and therefore, that is all that, that matters. Uh, materialism is its kind of the ultimate what you see is what you get, outlook on life. Uh, and that's the framework of thinking and living uh, that many have. And in this framework, God has no place. Uh, it's, it's the idea that, that life is just about me, what I see, what I do, what I want, what I get, what I have. And God doesn't fit with that. It's the mindset of many people, much of our culture, and it's the mindset behind the behaviour that James addresses in 4 verse 13. He says there, Now listen, you who say, I'm not going to put these verses on the Bible, so you need a Bible so you can follow along with me. Uh, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this city or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. At, at first glance, you might see, think, well, that, that sounds pretty harmless. I mean, it's just some kind of forward-thinking strategic planning. You know, Maybe the, the business management gurus might applaud this idea for its you know, goal-setting even if they might say it's got to be a bit more specific or measurable or time-bound or whatever it is that they, the planning gurus say and that things need to be. I mean, is this just kind of making a plan? And don't we make plans? You know, this year we're going to fix up the kitchen. This year we're going to have a holiday at the beach. This year I'm going to get a new job. This year we're going to buy a new house. This year we're, we're going to plant a church. It, it, it's kind of What we do, I mean, this is the time of year, in January, we often make plans and set goals. Is James talking to you and me saying, now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will, is this addressing us? If so, what does he say? Well, he says, verse 14, why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Bam. James says, you're not in control. Of the future. You can't determine what will happen today or tomorrow. Uh, a materialistic worldview might, it might like to put me at the center of my life, but actually I'm not in control of my life. I'm not in control of the future. And actually, on the grand scale of things, I am fairly insignificant. You are fairly insignificant. James continues verse 14. He says, What is your life? You are a mist. That appears for a little while and then vanishes. That's pretty confronting, isn't it? You're a mist. Uh, This past week in Katoomba, it's a place of weather is constantly changing. It's famously unpredictable. We had all sorts of weather, including mist, which was there for a while and then vanished. James says this is us. This is our lives. And if you step back and... See life from a bigger perspective, our life is one tiny blip. We're here for a little while and then gone. And so instead of saying, We're going to do this or that, what should we say? Should we just, well, maybe should we not make plans for the future? Just forget about the future? Just live in the present? No, James doesn't say that. He says, verse 15, instead, you ought to say, If it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or all that. So the problem is not the making of, of plans for the future. It's okay to make plans. The problem is ignoring the reality that God is in control. It's rejecting the fact that we actually live life subject to the Lord's will. And so we should say, if it is the Lord's will. We'll live and do this or that. Uh, This this way of thinking and speaking, it's it's actually the outworking of what we're told to do in last week's passage back in uh, chapter 4 verse 7. This is the person who submits themselves then to God, who comes near to God, who humbles themselves before the Lord. If we're living life in submission to God, in humility before him, then we will speak about the future, we'll plan for the future in that same way, in humility before him. Uh, The alternative of doing this is the person who's not humble but arrogant, as James says in the next verse, verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. To To ignore that reality that God is God, and to carry on with, with our plans, our schemes, with no reference to God, with no acknowledgement that he's in control, no recognition of the, the fleeting nature of our lives, of our inability to control the future. In short, that is boastful arrogance. So as we think about and, uh, and talk about and plan for the future, ask yourself, is God in the conversation? And actually, is God at the centre of the conversation. God's will should be front and centre of our plans. You've seen those, those six words, if it is the Lord's will, it's not just a, a kind of nice phrase to to add into our speech to kind of make us sound a bit more pious or to, to temper our boastful arrogance. Yeah. I'm going to rule the world if it's the Lord's will. You know, it's, it's not just about saying, those words. It's about seeking to embrace and to live out the Lord's will. If it's the Lord's will, because that's what I want, we will live and we'll do this or we'll do that. Remember Jesus' teaching in the, the Lord's Prayer? We're to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's our primary desire, our goal, our plan if we're following Christ. I want to do the Lord's will. So let me ask you, what's the, what's the worldview that you are living out? Do you recognize God as God? And so therefore, He's in control over your life as you think about the future. Does God feature in your thinking? Does God sit over your future? What you'll be doing next year what? whether you have a job next week actually whether you take your next breath that is all in God's hand if indeed we live in a universe under the control of a sovereign God see if we believe that God is God then we must live in a way that acknowledges him as God that seeks to do his will and instead of just fitting in with the uh, materialism in our culture, we, we must live with that perspective that says, if it is the Lord's will, we'll live and we'll do this or that. Now, living that way actually brings great comfort to us. I mean, the fact that God is God, that he is working out his great and sovereign purposes, that he chooses to work through fragile, broken people like us, that is a great comfort. He is in control. We can rest in that fact. Now, even when things seem out of control, when evil seems to have the upper hand, we can rest in the knowledge that God is God, that he will bring about a day of judgment. He will right all wrongs. God is God and he is at work in us. He is at work through us, bringing about his purposes. So if you're a Christian, if you're trusting and following Christ, then think and plan about the future in whatever Part of your life, do that in a way that puts God and his will, his plans front and center. well this next uh, next section of James's letter uh, is a really it's a sober warning to people like us who live in a materialistic culture. whether we're rich or whether we're poor God's word addresses us here. firstly, James writes to the rich and he warns them that judgment is coming their way. he says. Chapter 5, verse 1, Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. It's, a pretty, it's pretty full-on and horrible, isn't it? Your wealth is going to devour you. It's going to eat your flesh like fire. What have these people done? End verse 3, you have hoarded your wealth, in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. These people had hoarded wealth, that unjustly withheld the wages from those. It worked for them, that they would fattened themselves and lived in self-indulgence. Uh, materialism, that, that view that this material world is all there is, that it leads to profound selfishness and self-indulgence. I mean, if life is just about me, my stuff, God is nowhere to be found, then says materialism, if you have the chance, live in luxury. And self indulgence. Pursue wealth, hoard wealth, use wealth to live for yourself. After all, he with the most toys wins. That's what materialism says. But James warns us of the bigger picture that this world, this material world, is not all there is, that God is not absent. Rather, we are living in the last days. There's a judgment day coming when God will bring justice. And James says that by hoarding their wealth, by mistreating their workers, they are all they're doing is fattening themselves in the day of slaughter. Like an overweight, self-indulgent beast. They're about to be slaughtered. It's a horrible image. But this world is not all there is. God is God and will therefore one day bring justice. He will bring judgment. That reality... That should impact our attitudes, our behaviour towards money and wealth. Uh, we should certainly pay, the, uh, pay people what we owe to them. We should not mistreat or deprive them. We should not be selfish with any wealth that God may provide for us. I mean, Here is a way for us to be vastly different from the culture around us. Don't hoard wealth. Don't strive to increase your wealth. That'll mark you out as being different. Uh, one of my January jobs is to, um, to draw up a new family budget for the, for the coming year, for our family. Uh, and I've just got a, a new app uh, to help me with this. You, know, you enter all your information in, your bank accounts and details and what's on, your budget, and, and it helps to keep track of things. It's a, it's a helpful little, little app. But when I open up the app on my phone, the home page greets me like this. It says, good morning, Jonathan Squire. Your current net worth is, and then it gives me the dollar figure. My current net worth is this many dollars, according to this money management app. Here's my goal. Here's my purpose. Here's what I should strive for to increase my net worth to hoard my wealth, to finish life with more. God's word says, don't live on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. Don't make money-making the God that you live for. Don't strive for more money or a better house or a newer car or better stuff or more exciting travel as if those things matter most. Open your eyes to a Christian worldview that that recognizes that we're living in the last days and Judgment Day is coming. Use your money, use your possessions in light of that coming reality. How how do we do that? Um, The Apostle Paul has uh, some very helpful teaching in another part of the Bible which I I want to show you uh, briefly just to think through uh, how do we do this. In 1 Timothy 6, he says this. It'll come up on the screen. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world, which really got on a worldwide scale, that's probably most of us. Command those who are rich not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Two things to do. Don't be arrogant. Don't think you're something special because you have wealth. Wealth breeds arrogance. If you ever walked into a fancy hotel and there's people there to take your bags and to greet you kindly and to treat you well? and If that's the world and life that you live in, it's easy to start to think, well, gee, I must be important. Wealth breeds arrogance. Don't be arrogant. Don't put your hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Most people think that wealth will make them secure. Don't be arrogant. Don't put your hope in wealth. Three things to do. Put your hope in God. God is our source of security. And notice also there, he's our source of enjoyment. He richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. It's it's not wrong to... To have wealth, it's not wrong to enjoy good things, cars and houses and holidays. Enjoy what he gives us and thank him for it. But secondly, do good and be rich in good deeds. That's the, that's the true riches that matters, the richness, riches of doing good. And thirdly, be generous and willing to share with others. And do that in light of the coming age. Don't use your wealth for yourself in this life. Use your wealth for others and make a difference for the life to come. There's a little aside from 1 Timothy 6 about how to be different, how to live differently in a materialistic culture. But back to James 5 and 6 where we see at the end of this passage that he addresses kind of the other end of the spectrum, those not living in luxury and self-indulgence but those who are doing it tough. Those who are, as verse, seven, uh, verse 10 says, facing suffering. What does James say? Well, again, he, he points to the bigger picture beyond this world. He points to the Lord's coming. We, we don't live in a what you see is what you get world. The bigger reality is, is that Jesus has come from God to bring new life and Jesus is coming again. Verse 8 says, the Lord's coming is near. So what should we do? We should be patient, like the farmer who patiently waits for rain so that the land yields its crop. We're to patiently wait and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. If others are the haves and you're the have-nots, it's easy to complain and grumble. James says, verse 9, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. This warning of judgment is not just for the self-indulgent rich. It's also for the self-focused poor. How do we be patient in the face of suffering? That's hard. And what James does here is he points us back to the prophets. He points us to past examples of perseverance and past examples of God's faithfulness. He points to Job. He was a man who knew suffering He was left at the bottom of the heap heap in life. And yet he persevered in looking to the Lord. He wasn't sinless by any means, yet he persevered in looking to the Lord. And in the end, God delivered him. As it says, end of verse 11, the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. We can trust God. We can trust his character. We can trust his promises. We can wait patiently. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. So how should this affect us, impact us? Well, as I said earlier, it starts with our perspective. We actually need to look beyond this world with its shallow materialism. We need to recognize that God is God. He is in control, he has given us life with him and recognise that his coming is near. And in light of that fact, to be patient and to use what we have, be it a little or a lot, use who we are, whether we live and do this or do that, to live according to his will. As we do that, as we live as a Christian, that's going to put us out of step with much of the world around us. We will be different, but it will put us in step with God, our creator, our sustainer, our saviour, our Lord, our judge. So let me ask you, what's your worldview? What's your framework on life? What's your outlook? What, What are you living for? Have you humbled yourself before the Lord, having accepted Jesus as the one who died for you to bring you forgiveness and life? Are you living with Jesus as Saviour and Lord, the, the one whose coming is near? Are you living that, expressing that in your plans for your life, in your attitudes, in your actions regarding what you have, regarding what you don't have? Are you patiently waiting, standing firm, because the Lord's coming is near? James is pretty hard hitting, isn't he? What is it for you? What are the things that you need to to change in your thoughts, in your actions, in your behaviour, in your words? Why don't you just take a moment to, to have a think, perhaps to come before God in prayer yourself think about to pray about what what do you need to change take a moment and then I'll lead us in prayer Now, Lord God, our loving, gracious, heavenly Father, you are God over all. You are steadfast and faithful and sovereign. Now, Father, we ask that you would forgive us for our arrogance of acting like we're in control. Forgive us for our selfishness in hoarding the good things you give us. Forgive us for our grumbling and impatience. Father, in your compassion and mercy, as you promise, please cleanse us, purify us, strengthen us to stand firm, to patiently wait for you and to live now, not for our own selfish indulgence, but to live to serve and honour you as Lord and God. Father, please work this in us for the glory of Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.